Welcome to Natural History Stories, a podcast of classic writings on natural history and nature observation. Our second book is the Mary Austin collection, The Land of Little Rain, published in 1903. This episode contains the chapters The Land of Little Rain, Water Trails of the Ceriso, and The Scavengers. In these writings, there are outdated or regional common names used for birds. In this episode, you will hear a bird described as crested quail. Today we recognize this bird as California quail. The bird herein described as Clark's crow is now commonly called Clark's nutcracker. The Land of Little Rain Preface I confess to a great liking for the Indian fashion of name-giving, every man known by that phrase which best expresses him to whoso names him. Thus he may be mighty hunter, or man afraid of a bear, according as he is called by friend or enemy, and scar-face to those who knew him by the eye's grasp only. No other fashion, I think, sets so well with the various natures that inhabit in us, and if you agree with me, you will understand why so few names are written here as they appear in the geography. For if I love a lake known by the name of the man who discovered it, which endears itself by reason of the close-locked pines it nourishes about its borders, you may look in my account to find it so described. But if the Indians have been there before me, you shall have their name, which is always beautifully fit and does not originate in the poor human desire for perpetuity. Nevertheless, there are certain peaks, canyons, and clear meadow spaces which are above all compassing of words, and have a certain fame as the nobly great to whom we give no familiar names. Guided by these, you may reach my country and find, or not find, according as it lieth in you, much that is set down here, and more. The earth is no wanton to give up all her best to every comer, but keeps a sweet separate intimacy for each. But if you do not find it all as I write, think me not less dependable, nor yourself less clever. There is a sort of pretense allowed in matters of the heart, as one should say by way of illustration, I know a man who, and so give up his dearest experience without betrayal. And I am in no mind to direct you to delectable places toward which you will hold yourself less tenderly than I. So by this fashion of naming, I keep faith with the land, and annex to my own estate a very great territory, to which none has a surer title. The country where you may have sight and touch of that which is written lies between the high Sierras, south from Yosemite, east and south over a very great assemblage of broken ranges beyond Death Valley, and on illimitably into the Mojave Desert. You may come into the borders of it from the south by a stage journey that has the effect of involving a great lapse of time, or from the north by rail, dropping out of the overland route at Reno. The best of all ways is over the Sierra Passes, by pack and trail, seeing and believing, but the real heart and core of the country are not to come at it in a month's vacation. One must summer and winter with the land and wait its occasions. Pine woods that take two and three seasons to the ripening of cones, roots that lie by in the sand seven years awaiting a growing rain, firs that grow fifty years before flowering, these do not scrape acquaintance. But if ever you come beyond the borders as far as the town that lies in a hill dimple at the foot of Kearsarge, never leave it until you have knocked at the door of the brown house under the willow tree at the end of the village street, and there you shall have such news of the land, of its trails, 
of what is astir in them as one lover of it can give to another. The Land of Little Rain East away from the Sierras, south from Panamint and Amaragosa, east and south many an uncounted mile, is the country of lost borders. Ute, Paiute, Mojave, and Shoshone inhabit its frontiers, and as far into the heart of it as man dare go. Not the law, but the land sets the limit. Desert is the name it wears upon the maps, but the Indians is the better word. Desert is a loose term to indicate land that supports no man. Whether the land can be bitted and broken to that purpose, it is not proven. Void of life it never is, however dry the air and villainous the soil. This is the nature of that country. There are hills, rounded, blunt, burned, squeezed up out of chaos, chrome and vermilion painted, aspiring to the snow line. Between the hills lie high, level-looking plains, full of intolerable sun glare, or narrow valleys drowned in a blue haze. The hill surface is streaked with ash drift and black, unweathered lava flows. After rainwater accumulates in the hollows of small closed valleys and, evaporating, leaves hard, dry levels of pure desertness that gets to the local name of dry lakes. Where the mountains are steep and the rains heavy, the pool is never quite dry, but dark and bitter, rimmed about with the efflorescence of alkaline deposits. A thin crust of it lies along the marsh over the vegetating area, which has neither beauty nor freshness. In the broad wastes open to the wind, the sand drifts in hummocks and about the stubby shrubs, and between them the soil shows saline traces. The sculpture of the hills here is more wind than water work, though the quick storms do sometimes scar them past many a year's redeeming. In all the western desert edges there are essays in miniature at the famed terrible Grand Canyon, to which if you keep on long enough in this country you will come at last. Since this is a hill country one expects to find springs, but not to depend upon them for when found they are often brackish and unwholesome or maddening slow dribbles in a thirsty soil. Here you find the hot sink of Death Valley or the high rolling districts where the air always has a tang of frost. Here are the long heavy winds and breathless calms on the tilted mesas where dust devils dance, whirling up into a wide pale sky. Here you have no rain when all earth cries for it, or quick downpours called cloudbursts for violence. A land of lost rivers, with little in it to love, yet a land that once visited must be come back to inevitably. If it were not so, there would be little told of it. This is the country of three seasons. From June on to November it lies hot, still, and unbearable, sick with violent, unrelieving storms, then on until April, chill, quiescent, drinking its scant rain and scanter snows, from April to the hot season again, blossoming, radiant, and seductive. These months are only approximate. Later or earlier, the rain-laden wind may drift up the water gate of the Colorado from the Gulf, and the land sets its seasons by the rain. The desert floras shame us with their cheerful adaptations to the seasonal limitations. Their whole duty is to flower and fruit, and they do it hardly, or with tropical luxuriance, as the rain admits. It is recorded in the report of the Death Valley Expedition that after a year of abundant rains, on the Colorado desert was found a specimen of amaranthus ten feet high. A year later, the same species in the same place matured in the drought at four inches. One hopes the land may breed like qualities in her human offspring, not tritely to try, but to do. Seldom does the desert herb attain the full stature of the type. Extreme aridity and extreme altitude have the same dwarfing effect, 
so that we find in the high Sierras and in Death Valley related species in miniature that reach a comely growth in mean temperatures. Very fertile are the desert plants in expedience to prevent evaporation, turning their foliage edgewise toward the sun, growing silky hairs, exuding viscid gum. The wind, which has a long sweep, harries and helps them. It rolls up dunes about the stocky stems, encompassing and protective, and above the dunes, which may be, as with the mesquite, three times as high as a man, the blossoming twigs flourish and bear fruit. There are many areas in the desert where drinkable water lies within a few feet of the surface, indicated by the mesquite and the bunch grass. It is this nearness of unimagined help that makes the tragedy of desert deaths. It is related to that final breakdown of that hapless party that gave Death Valley its forbidding name, occurred in a locality where shallow wells would have saved them. But how were they to know that? Properly equipped, it is possible to go safely across that ghastly sink, yet every year it takes its toll of death, and yet men find there sun-dried mummies of whom no trace or recollection is preserved. To underestimate one's thirst, to pass a given landmark to the right or left, to find a dry spring where one looked for running water, there is no help for any of these things. Along springs and sunken watercourses, one is surprised to find such water-loving plants as grow widely in moist ground, but the true desert breeds its own kind, each in its particular habitat. The angle of the slope, the frontage of a hill, the structure of the soil determines the plant. South-looking hills are nearly bare, and the lower tree line higher here by a thousand feet. Canyons running east and west will have one wall naked and one clothed. Around dry lakes and marshes, the herbage preserves a set and orderly arrangement. Most species have well-defined areas of growth, the best index the voiceless land can give the traveler of his whereabouts. If you have any doubt about it, know that the desert begins with the creosote. This immortal shrub spreads down into Death Valley and up to the timberline, odorous and medicinal, as you might guess from the name, wand-like with shining fretted foliage. Its vivid green is grateful to the eye in a wilderness of gray and greenish-white shrubs. In the spring it exudes a resinous gum, which the Indians of those parts know how to use with pulverized rock for cementing arrow points to shafts. Trust Indians not to miss any virtues of the plant world. Nothing the desert produces expresses it better than the unhappy growth of the tree yuccas. Tormented thin forests of it stalk drearily into the high mesas, particularly in that triangular slip that fans out eastward from the meeting of the Sierras and coastwise hills where the first swings across the southern end of the San Joaquin Valley. The yucca bristles with bayonet-pointed leaves, dull green, growing shaggy with age, tipped with panicles of fetid greenish bloom. After death, which is slow, the ghostly hollow network of its woody skeleton, with hardly power to rot, makes the moonlight fearful. Before the yucca has come to flower, while yet its bloom is a creamy, cone-shaped bud of the size of a small cabbage, full of sugary sap, the Indians twist it deftly out of its fence of daggers and roast it for their own delectation. So it is that in those parts where man inhabits, one sees young plants of yucca arborensis infrequently. Other yuccas, cacti, low herbs, a thousand sorts, one finds journeying east from the coastwise hills. There is neither poverty of soil nor species to account for the sparseness of desert growth, but simply that each plant requires more room. So much earth must be preempted to extract so much moisture. The real struggle for existence, the real brain of the plant, is underground. Above, there is room for a rounded, perfect growth. In Death Valley, reputed the very core of desolation, 
are nearly 200 identified species. Above the lower tree line, which is also the snow line, mapped out abruptly by the sun, one finds spreading growth of pinion, juniper branched nearly to the ground, lilac and sage, and scattering white pines. There is no special preponderance of self-fertilized or wind-fertilized plants, but everywhere the demand for and evidence of insect life. Now where there are seeds and insects, there will be birds and small mammals, and where these are will come the slinking, sharp-toothed kind that prey upon them. Go as far as you dare in the heart of a lonely land. You cannot go so far that life and death are not before you. Painted lizards slip in and out of rock crevices and pant on the white-hot sands. Birds, hummingbirds even, nest in the cactus scrub. Woodpeckers befriend the demonic yuccas out of the stark treeless waste rings, the music of the night-singing mockingbird. If it be summer and the sun be well down, there will be a burrowing owl to call. Strange, furry, tricksy things dart across the open places or sit motionless in the conning towers of the creosote. The poet may have named all the birds without a gun, but not the fairy-footed, the ground-inhabiting, furtive, small folk of the rainless regions. They are too many and too swift. How many you would not believe without seeing the footprint tracings in the sand? They are nearly all night workers, finding the days too hot and white. In mid-desert, where there are no cattle, there are no birds of carrion. But if you go far in that direction, the chances are that you will find yourself shadowed by their tilted wings. Nothing so large as a man can move unspied upon in that country, and they know well how the land deals with strangers. There are hints to be had here of the way in which the land forces new habits on its dwellers. The quick increase of suns at the end of spring sometimes overtakes birds in their nesting and affects a reversal of the ordinary manner of incubation. It becomes necessary to keep eggs cool rather than warm. One hot, stifling spring in the little antelope, I had occasion to pass and repass frequently the nest of a pair of meadowlarks, located unhappily in the shelter of a very slender weed. I never caught them sitting except near night, but at midday they stood or drooped above it, half fainting with pitifully parted bills between their treasure and the sun. Sometimes both of them together with wings spread and half lifted continued a spot of shade in a temperature that constrained me at last in a fellow feeling to spare them a bit of canvas for permanent shelter. There was a fence in that country, shutting in a cattle range, and along its fifteen miles of posts one could be sure of finding a bird or two in every strip of shadow, sometimes the sparrow and the hawk with wings trailed and beaks parted, drooping in the white truce of noon. If one is inclined to wonder at first how so many dwellers came to be in the loneliest land that ever came out of God's hands, what they do there and why they stay, one does not wonder so much after having lived there. None other than this long brown land lays such a hold on the affections. The rainbow hills, the tender bluish mists, the luminous radiance of spring have the lotus charm. They trick the sense of time so that once inhabiting there, you always mean to go away without quite realizing that you have not done it. Men who have lived there, miners and cattlemen, will tell you this, not so fluently, but emphatically cursing the land and going back to it. For one thing, there is the divinest, cleanest air to be breathed anywhere in God's world. Someday the world will understand that, and the little oasis on the windy tops of hills will harbor for healing its ailing, house-weary broods. There is promise there of great wealth in ores and earths, which is no wealth by reason of being so far removed from water and workable conditions, but men are bewitched by it and tempted to try the impossible. 
You should hear Salty Williams tell how he used to drive 18 and 20 mule teams from the Borax Marsh to the Mojave, 90 miles with the trail wagon full of water barrels. Hot days, the mules would go so mad for drink that the clank of the water bucket set them into an uproar of hideous maimed noises and a tangle of harness chains, while Salty would sit on the high seat with the sun glare heavy in his eyes, dealing out curses of pacification in a level, uninterested voice until the clamor fell off from sheer exhaustion. There was a line of shallow graves along that road. They used to count on dropping a man or two of every new gang of coolies brought out in the hot season. But when he lost his swamper, smitten without warning at the noon halt, Salty quit his job. He said it was too darn hot. The swamper he buried, by the way, with stones upon him to keep the coyotes from digging him up. And seven years later, I read the penciled lines on the pine headboard, still bright and unweathered. But before that, driving up the Mojave stage, I met Salty again crossing Indian Wells. His face from the high seat, tanned and ruddy as a harvest moon, looming through the golden dust above his eighteen mules. The land had called him. The palpable sense of mystery in the desert air breeds fables, chiefly of lost treasure. Somewhere within its stark borders, if one believes report, is a hill strewn with nuggets, one seamed with virgin silver, an old clayey waterbed where Indians scooped up earth to make cooking pots and shaped them, reeking with grains of pure gold. Old miners, drifting about the desert edges, weathered into the semblance of the tawny hills, will tell you tales like these convincingly. After a little sojourn in that land, you will believe them on their own account. It is a question whether it is not better to be bitten by the little horned snake of the desert that goes sidewise and strikes without coiling than by the tradition of a lost mine. And yet, and yet, is it not perhaps to satisfy expectation that one falls into the tragic key in writing of desertness? The more you wish of it, the more you get, and in the meantime lose much of the pleasantness. In that country, which begins at the foot of the east slope of the Sierras and spreads out by less and less lofty hill ranges toward the Great Basin, it is possible to live with great zest, to have red blood and delicate joys, to pass and repass about one's daily performance an area that would make an Atlantic seaboard state, and that with no peril and, according to our way of thought, no particular difficulty. At any rate, it was not people who went into the desert merely to write it up who invented the fabled Hasiampa, of whose waters, if any drink, they can no more see facts as naked fact, but all radiant with the color of romance. I, who must have drunk of it in my twice seven years' wanderings, am assured that it is worthwhile. For all the toll the desert takes of a man, it gives compensations, deep breaths, deep sleep, and the communion of the stars— it comes upon one with a new force in the pauses of the night that the Chaldeans were a desert-bred people. It is hard to escape the sense of mastery as the stars move in the wide, clear heavens to risings and settings unobscured. They look large and near and palpitant, as if they moved on some stately service not needful to declare. Wheeling to their stations in the sky, they make the poor world fret of no account. Of no account, you who lie out there watching— nor the lean coyote that stands off in the scrub from you and howls and howls. Water Trails of the Ceriso By the end of the dry season, the water trails of the Ceriso are worn to a white ribbon in the leaning grass, spread out faint and fan-wise toward the homes of the gopher and the ground rat and squirrel. But however faint to man's sight, they are sufficiently plain to the furred and feathered folk who travel them, 
Getting down to the eye level of rat and squirrel kind, one perceives what might easily be wide and winding roads to us if they occurred in thick plantations of trees three times the height of a man. It needs but a slender thread of barrenness to make a mouse trail in the forest of the sod. To the little people, the water trails are as country roads, with scents as signboards. It seems that man height is the least fortunate of all heights from which to study trails. It is better to go up the front of some tall hill, say the spur of Black Mountain, looking back and down across the hollow of the Ceriso. Strange how long the soil keeps the impression of any continuous treading, even after grass has overgrown it. Twenty years since, a brief heyday of mining at Black Mountain made a stage road across the Ceriso, yet the parallel lines that are the wheel traces show from the height dark and well-defined. A foot in the Ceriso, one looks in vain for any sign of it, so all the paths that wild creatures are going down to the lone tree spring are mapped out whitely from this level, which is also the level of the hawks. There is little water in the Ceriso at the best of times, and that little brackish and smelling viley. But by a lone juniper where the rim of the Ceriso breaks away to the lower country, there is a perpetual rill of fresh, sweet drink in the midst of lush grass and watercress. In the dry season there is no water else for a man's long journey of a day. East to the foot of Black Mountain, and north and south without counting, are the burrows of small rodents, rat and squirrel kind. Under the sage are the shallow forms of the jackrabbits, and in the dry banks of washes, and among the strewn fragments of black rock, layers of bobcat, fox, and coyote. The coyote is your true water witch, one who snuffs and paws, snuffs and paws again at the smallest spot of moisture-scented earth until he has freed the blind water from the soil. Many water holes are no more than this detected by the lean hobo of the hills in localities where not even an Indian would look for it. It is the opinion of many wise and busy people that the hill folk pass the ten-month interval between the end and renewal of winter rains with no drink, but your true idler with days and nights to spend beside the water trails will not subscribe to it. The trails begin, as I said, very far back in the Ceriso, faintly, and converge in one span broad, white, hard-trodden way in the gully of the spring. And why the trails, if there are no travelers in that direction? I have yet to find the land not scarred by the thin, far roadways of rabbits and what not of furry folks that run in them. Venture to look for some seldom-touched waterhole, and so long as the trails run with your general direction, make sure you are right, but if they begin to cross yours at never so slight an angle to converge toward a point left or right of your objective, no matter what the maps say or your memory, trust them. They know. It is very still in the Ceriso by day, so that were it not for the evidence of those white-beaten ways, it might be the desert it looks. The sun is hot in the dry season, and the days are filled with the glare of it. Now and again some unseen coyote signals his pack in a long-drawn, dolorous whine that comes from no determinate point, but nothing stirs much before mid-afternoon. It is a sign when there begin to be hawks skimming above the sage that the little people are going about their business. We have fallen on a very careless usage, speaking of wild creatures as if they were bound by some limitations as hampers clockwork. When we say of one and another they are night prowlers, it is perhaps true only as the things they feed upon are most easily come by in the dark, and they know how well to adjust themselves to conditions wherein food is more plentiful by day. And their accustomed performance is very much a matter of keen eye, keener scent, quick ear, and a better memory of sights and sounds than man dares boast. Watch a coyote come out of his lair and cast about in his mind where he will go for his daily killing. 
You cannot very well tell what decides him, but very easily that he has decided. He trots or breaks into short gallops with very perceptible pauses to look up and about at landmarks, alters his track a little, looking forward and back to steer his proper course. I am persuaded that the coyotes in my valley, which is narrow and beset with steep, sharp hills, in long passages steer by the pinnacles of the skyline, going with the head cocked to one side to keep to the left or right of such and such a promontory. I have trailed a coyote often, going across country, perhaps to where some slant-winged scavenger hanging in the air signaled prospect of a dinner, and found his tracks such as a man, a very intelligent man accustomed to a hill country and a little cautious, would make to the same point. Here a detour to avoid a stretch of too little cover, there a pause on the rim of a gully to pick the better way, and it is usually the best way, and making his point with the greatest economy of effort. Since the time of the Savai, the deer have shifted their feeding grounds across the valley at the beginning of the deep snows, by the way of the Black Rock, fording the river at Charlie's Butte and making straight for the mouth of the canyon that is easiest going to the winter pastures on Waban. So they still cross, though whatever trail they had has been long broken by plowed ground, but from the mouth of Tinpah Creek, where the deer come out to the Sierras, it is easily seen that the creek, the point of Black Rock, and Charlie's Butte are in line with the wide bulk of shade that is the foot of Waban Pass. And along this the deer have learned that Charlie's Butte is almost the only possible ford, and all the shortest crossing of the valley. It seems that the wild creatures have learned all that is important to their way of life except the changes of the moon. I have seen some prowling fox or coyote surprised by its sudden rising from behind the mountain wall slink in in its increasing glow, watching it furtively from the cover of nearby bush, unprepared and half certain of its identity until it rode clear of the peaks and finally make off with all the air of one caught napping by an ancient joke. The moon and its wanderings must be a sort of exasperation to cunning beasts, likely to spoil by untimely risings some foreplanned mischief. But to take the trail again, the coyotes that are astir in the Ceriso of late afternoons, harrying the rabbits from their shallow forms, and the hawks that sweep and swing above them, are not there from any mechanical promptings of instinct, but because they know of old experience that the small fry are about to take to seed gathering and the water trails. The rabbits begin it, taking the trail with long, light leaps, one eye and ear cocked to the hills from whence a coyote might descend upon them at any moment. Rabbits are a foolish people. They do not fight except with their own kind, nor use their paws except for feet, and appear to have no reason for existence but to furnish meals for meat-eaters. In flight they seem to rebound from the earth of their own elasticity, but keep a sober pace going to the spring. It is the young watercress that tempts them and the pleasures of society, for they seldom drink. Even in localities where there are flowing streams, they seem to prefer the moisture that collects on herbage, and after rains may be seen rising on their haunches to drink delicately from the clear drops caught in the tops of the young sage. But drink they must, as I have often seen them mornings and evenings at the rill that goes by my door. Wait long enough at the lone tree spring, and sooner or later they will all come in. But here their matings are accomplished, and though they are fearful of so little as a cloud shadow or a blown leaf, they contrive to have some playful hours. At the spring the bobcat drops down upon them from the black rock, and the red fox picks them up returning in the dark. By day the hawk and eagle overshadow them, and the coyote has all times and seasons for his own. Cattle, when there are any in the Ceriso, drink morning and evening, spending the night on the warm, last-lighted slopes of neighboring hills, stirring with the peep of day. 
In these half-wild, spotted steers, the habits of an earlier lineage persist. It must be long since they have made beds for themselves, but before lying down they turn themselves round and round as dogs do. They choose bare and stony ground, exposed fronts of westward-facing hills, and lie down in companies. Usually, by the end of the summer, the cattle have been driven or gone of their own choosing to the mountain meadows. One year, a maverick yearling, strayed or overlooked by the vaqueros, kept on until season's end, and so betrayed another visitor to the spring that else I might have missed. On a certain morning, the half-eaten carcass lay at the foot of the black rock, and in the moist earth by the rill of the spring, the footpads of a cougar, puma, mountain lion, or whatever the beast is rightly called. The kill must have been made early in the evening, for it appeared that the cougar had been twice to the spring, and since the meat-eater drinks little until he has eaten, he must have fed and drunk, and after an interval of lying up in the black rock, had eaten and drunk again. There is no knowing how far he had come, but if he came again the second night, he found that the coyotes had left him very little of his kill. Nobody ventures to say how infrequently and at what hour the small fry visit the spring. There are such numbers of them that if each came between the last of spring and the first of winter rains, there would still be water trails. I have seen badgers drinking about the hour where the light takes on the yellow tinge it has from coming slantwise through the hills. They find out shallow places and are loath to wet their feet. Rats and chipmunks have been observed visiting the spring as late as nine o'clock mornings. The larger spermophiles that live near the spring and keep awake to work all day come and go at no particular hour, drinking sparingly. At long intervals, on half-lighted days, meadow and field mice steal delicately along the trail. These visitors are all too small to be watched carefully at night, but for evidence of their frequent coming, there are the trails that may be traced miles out among the crisping grasses. On rare nights, in the places where no grass grows between the shrubs and the sand silvers whitely to the moon, one sees them whisking to and fro on innumerable errands of seed-gathering, but the chief witnesses of their presence near the spring are the elf-owls. Those burrow-haunting speckled fluffs of greediness begin a twilight flitting toward the spring, feeding as they go on grasshoppers, lizards, and small swift creatures, diving into burrows to catch field mice asleep, battling with chipmunks at their own doors, and getting down in great numbers toward the lone juniper. Now owls do not love water greatly on its own account, not to my knowledge have I caught one drinking or bathing, though on night wanderings across the mesa they flit up from under the horse's feet along stream borders. Their presence near the spring in great numbers would indicate the presence of the things they feed upon. All night the rustle and soft hooting keeps on in the neighborhood of the spring, with seldom small shrieks of mortal agony. It is clear day before they have all gotten back to their particular hummocks. And if one follows cautiously not to frighten them into some nearby burrow, it is possible to trail them far up the slope. The crested quail that troop in the Ceriso are the happiest frequenters of the water trails. There is no furtiveness about their morning drink. About the time the burrowers and all that feed upon them are addressing themselves to sleep, great flocks pour down the trails with that peculiar melting motion of moving quail, twittering, shoving, and shouldering. They splatter into the shallows, drink daintily, shake out small showers over their perfect coats, and melt away again into the scrub, preening and pranking, with soft, contented noises. After the quail, sparrows and ground-inhabiting birds bathe with the utmost frankness and a great deal of splutter, and here in the heart of noon, hawks resort, sitting, panting, with wings aslant, and a truce to all hostilities because of the heat. One summer there came a roadrunner up from the lower valley, peeking and prying, and he had never any patience with the water baths of the sparrow. 
His own ablutions were performed in the clean, hopeful dust of the chaparral, and whenever he happened on their morning splatterings, he would depress his glossy crest, slant his shining tail toward the level of his body until he looked like some bright, venomous snake daunting them with shrill abuse and feint of battle. Then suddenly he would go tilting and balancing down the gully in fine disdain, only to return in a day or two to make sure the foolish bodies were still at it. Out on the Ceriso, about five miles and wholly out of sight of it, near where the immemorial foot trail goes up from Saline Flat toward Black Mountain, is a water sign worth turning out of the trail to see. It is a laid circle of stones large enough not to be disturbed by any ordinary hap, with an opening flanked by two parallel rows of similar stones, between which were an arrow placed, touching the opposite rim of the circle. Thus, it would point as the crow flies to the spring. It is the old, indubitable watermark of the Shoshones. One still finds it in the desert ranges, in salt wells and mesquite valleys, and along the slopes of Waban. On the other side of Ceriso, where the Black Rock begins, about a mile from the spring, is the work of an older, forgotten people. The rock hereabout is all volcanic, fracturing with a crystalline whitish surface, but weathered outside to furnace blackness. Around the spring, where must have been a gathering place of the tribes, it is scored over with strange pictures and symbols that have no meaning to the Indians of the present day. But out where the rock begins, there is carved into the white heart of it a pointing arrow over the symbol for distance and a circle full of wavy lines, reading thus, In this direction, three, units of measurement unknown, is a spring of sweet water. Look for it. The Scavengers Fifty-seven buzzards, one on each of fifty-seven fence posts at the Rancho El Tejon, on a mirage-breeding September morning, sat solemnly, while the white-tilted travelers' vans lumbered down the Canada de los Yuvas. After three hours, they had only clapped their wings or exchanged posts. The season's end in the vast, dim valley of the San Joaquin is palpitatingly hot, and the air breathes like cotton wool. Through it all, the buzzards sit on the fences in low hummocks with wings spread fanwise for air. There is no end to them, and they smell to heaven. Their heads droop, and all their communication is a rare, horrid croak. The increase of wild creatures is in proportion to the things they feed upon. The more carrion, the more buzzards. The end of the third successive dry year bred them beyond belief. The first year, quail mated sparingly. The second year, the wild oats matured no seed. The third, cattle died in their tracks with their heads toward the stopped watercourses. And that year, the scavengers were as black as the plague all across the mesa and up the treeless tumbled hills. On clear days, they betook themselves to the upper air, where they hung motionless for hours. That year, there were vultures among them, distinguished by the white patches under the wings. All their offensiveness notwithstanding, they have a stately flight. They must also have what pass for good qualities among themselves, for they are social, not to say clannish. It is a very squalid tragedy, that of the dying brutes and the scavenger birds. Death by starvation is slow. The heavy-headed, rack-boned cattle totter in the fruitless trails. They stand for long, patient intervals. They lie down and do not rise. There is fear in their eyes when they are first stricken, but afterward only intolerable weariness. I suppose the dumb creatures know nearly as much of death as do their betters, who have only the more imagination. Their even-breathing submission after the first agony is their tribute to its inevitableness. It needs a nice discrimination to say, 
which of the basket-ribbed cattle is likeliest to afford the next meal, but the scavengers make few mistakes. One stoops to the quarry, and the flock follows. Cattle, once down, may be days in dying. They stretch out their necks along the ground. They roll up their slow eyes at longer intervals. The buzzards have all the time, and no beak is dropped or talon struck until the breath is wholly passed. It is doubtless the economy of nature to have the scavengers by to clean up carrion. But a wolf at the throat would be a shorter agony than the long stalking and sometimes perchings of these loathsome watchers. Suppose now it were a man in this long-drawn, hungrily spied-upon distress. When Timmy O'Shea was lost on Amaragosa Flats for three days without water, Long Tom Bassett found him, not by any trail, but by making straight away for the points where he saw buzzards stooping. He could hear the beat of their wings, Tom said, and trod on their shadows, but O'Shea was past recalling what he thought about things after the second day. My friend Ewan told me, among other things, when he came back from San Juan Hill, that not all the carnage of battle turned his bowels as the sight of slant black wings rising flockwise before the burial squad. There are three kinds of noises buzzards make. It is impossible to call them notes, raucous and elemental. There is a short croak of alarm and the same syllable in a modified tone to serve all the purpose of ordinary conversation. The old birds make a kind of throaty chuckling to their young, but if they have any love song, I have not heard it. The young yawp in the nest a little, with more breath than noise. It is seldom one finds a buzzard's nest, seldom that grown-ups find a nest of any sort. It is only children to whom these things happen by right. But by making a business of it, one may come upon them in wide, quiet canyons, or on the lookouts of lonely table-topped mountains, three or four together in the tops of stubby trees, or on rotten cliffs well open to the sky. It is probable that the buzzard is gregarious, but it seems unlikely from the small number of young noted at any time that every female incubates each year. The young birds are easily distinguished by their size when feeding, and high up in the air by the worn primaries of the older birds. It is when the young go out of the nest on their first foraging that the parents, full of a crass and simple pride, make their indescribable chucklings of gobbling, gluttonous delight. The little ones would be amusing as they tug and tussle if one could forget what it is they feed upon. One never comes any nearer to the vulture's nest or nestlings than hearsay. They keep to the southerly Sierras and are bold enough, it seems, to do killing on their own account when no carrion is at hand. They dog the shepherd from camp to camp, the hunter home from the hill, and will even carry away offal from under his hand. The vulture merits respect for his bigness and for his bandit airs, but he is a somber bird with none of the buzzard's frank satisfaction in his offensiveness. The least objectionable of the inland scavengers is the raven, frequenter of the desert ranges, the same called locally carrion crow. He is handsomer and has such an air. He is nice in his habits and is said to have likable traits. A tame one in a Shoshone camp was the butt of much sport and enjoyed it. He could all but talk and was another of the children, but an errant thief. The raven will eat most things that come his way, eggs and young of ground-nesting birds, seeds, even lizards and grasshoppers, which he catches cleverly, and whatever he is about. Let a coyote trot never so softly by, the raven flaps up and after, for whatever the coyote can pull down or nose out is meat also for the carrion crow. And never a coyote comes out of his lair for killing in the country of carrion crows, but looks up first to see where they may be gathering. It is a sufficient occupation for a windy morning on the lineless level mesa, 
to watch the pair of them eyeing each other furtively, with a tolerable assumption of unconcern, but no doubt with a certain amount of good understanding about it. Once at Red Rock in a year of green pasture, which is a bad time for the scavengers, we saw two buzzards, five ravens, and a coyote feeding on the same carrion, and only the coyote seemed ashamed of the company. Probably we never fully credit the interdependence of wild creatures and their cognizance of the affairs of their own kind. When the five coyotes that ranged the Tejon from Pasteria to Tunawai planned a relay race to bring down an antelope strayed from the band, Beside myself to watch, an eagle swung down from Mount Pinos. Buzzards materialized out of invisible ether, and hawks came trooping like small boys to a street fight. Rabbits sat up in the chaparral and cocked their ears, feeling themselves quite safe for the once as the hunt swung near them. Nothing happens in this deep wood that the blue jays are not all agog to tell. The hawk follows the badger, the coyote, the carrion crow, and from their aerial stations the buzzards watch each other. What would be worth knowing is how much of their neighbors' affairs the new generations learn for themselves and how much they are taught of their elders. So wide is the range of the scavengers that it is never safe to say, eyewitness to the contrary, that there are few or many in such a place. Where the carrion is, there will the buzzards be gathered together, and in three days' journey you will not sight another one. The way up from Mojave to Red Butte is all desertness, affording no pasture and scarcely a rill of water. In a year of little rain in the south, flocks and herds were driven to the number of thousands along this road to the perennial pastures of the high ranges. It is a long, slow trail, ankle-deep in bitter dust that gets up in the slow wind and moves along the backs of the crawling cattle. In the worst of times, one in three will pine and fall out by the way. In the defiles of red rock, the sheep piled up a stinking lane. It was the sun smiting by day. To these shambles came buzzards, vultures, and coyotes from all the country around, so that on the Tejan, the Ceriso, and the little antelope, there were not scavengers enough to keep the country clean. All that summer, the dead mummified in the open or dropped slowly back to the earth in the quagmires of the bitter springs. Meanwhile, from Red Rock to Coyote Holes and from Coyote Holes to Highway, the scavengers gorged and gorged. The coyote is not a scavenger by choice, preferring his own kill, but being on the whole a lazy dog is apt to fall into carrion eating because it is easier. The red fox and bobcat, a little pressed by hunger, will eat of any other animal's kill, but will not ordinarily touch what dies of itself and are exceedingly shy of food that has been manhandled. Very clean and handsome, quite belying his relationship and appearance, is Clark's crow, that scavenger and plunderer of mountain camps. It is permissible to call him by his common name, Camp Robber. He has earned it. Not content with refuse, he pecks open meal snacks, filches whole potatoes, is a gourmand for bacon, drills holes in packing cases, and is daunted by nothing short of tin. All the while, he does not neglect to vituperate the chipmunks and sparrows that whisk off crumbs of comfort from under the camper's feet. The camp robber's gray coat, black and white barred wings, and slender bill, with certain tricks of perching, accuse him of attempts to pass himself off among woodpeckers, but his behavior is all crow. He frequents the higher pine belts and has a noisy, strident call like a jay's, and how clean he and the frisk-tailed chipmunks keep the camp. No crumb or paring or bit of eggshells goes amiss. High as the camp may be, so it is not above timberline. It is not too high for the coyote, the bobcat, or the wolf. It is the complaint of the ordinary camper that the woods are too still, depleted of wildlife. But what dead body of wild thing or neglected game, untouched by its kind, do you find? 
and put out offal away from camp overnight, and look next day at the foot tracks where it lay. Man is a great blunderer going about in the woods, and there is no other except the bear makes so much noise. Being so well warned beforehand, it is a very stupid animal, or a very bold one, that cannot keep safely hid. The cunningest hunter is hunted in turn, and what he leaves of his kill is meat for some other. That is the economy of nature, but with it all there is not sufficient account taken of the works of man. There is no scavenger that eats tin cans, and no wild thing leaves a like disfigurement on the forest floor. Natural History Stories, a podcast of classic writings on natural history and nature observation, is produced and narrated by me, Pete Ryan. This is a Planting Natives podcast.